So today is Sunday. It is uh, September 23rd, 2018. We're in our third message in our Marriage and Spiritual Reproduction series. Have y'all been enjoying this series so far? I mean, it's a boring topic, isn't it? It's not one any of you have interest in marriage or reproduction. Our first message was limp leadership, flaccid marriage. And we examined the seven requirements for a man to marry a woman in the Bible. I'd like to show you a slide from that uh, message. This was as we broke down the book of Genesis and put them in order. A man has to have a purpose from God's mouth to his ears before he ever considers leading a family or being joined to a woman. Secondly, he must live in the presence of God. We looked at Eden and did a word study on Eden and saw It's varied meanings, everything from the kind of pleasure that people experience in an intimate embrace to generally delightful things to a physical location on the planet. But the man met the woman in the presence of God. The third thing that we saw in that message was a guy's got to have a job before he's got a girl. Somebody say amen. Amen. Job before woman. That's, That's a fair statement, isn't it? Because the job is where you prove yourself Faithful. It's where you get to show diligence and develop your character, which led us to the fourth thing that had to do with the man's job. God didn't just give us hard work. In fact, hard work came after the fall. The work that the man had was to cultivate, to bring forth the best in whatever his hands were touching. Ladies, you ought to be looking for a man that life follows him. His everything that he does brings out the best in someone else. The fifth thing that we saw in that message is we were looking for men that were willing to protect what God had entrusted to them. There is an enemy, a thief. He comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And the man must learn to protect what God has given him. The sixth thing in that message was God gave man the word. He did not give those same instructions to Eve, not anywhere recorded in Genesis. He gave man the word. Ladies, when you find a man with purpose, presence, a job, who can cultivate and protect and possesses the word, that kind of man should not be alone. If he doesn't have those things, then it follows that kind of man should be alone. Come on, girl. Somebody say, leave that man alone. Where Adam seems to have dropped the ball was in the seventh principle. He was supposed to teach the word to his wife. In not doing so, it puts us all in the predicament we're in. Our second topic, it's been clicked on quite a few times. I can't figure out why. It was ED and the cure. We openly mocked Pfizer's futile efforts to address men's issues through their product, Viagra. We instead focused on the 3,500-year-old prescription that the Jewish people safeguarded. They named theirs Vayikra, the book of Leviticus. They patented it and then offered it to the world free of charge to the recipient, but it came at the cost of the life of the giver. That message focused on Leviticus or Vayikra 17.11. For the life of the creature is in the blood. And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. 
During that message, we looked at this slide, which was a highly defined anatomical description of a woman. And uh, we noticed that the woman's body is likened to a temple in the Bible. We walked through the scriptures regarding that, and we realized that marriage is a blood covenant complete with a torn veil to the Holy of Holies. We also saw that blood, not love, say blood, blood. Not, love, not love, is the foundation of the life or death of a marriage. In our country, it's popular to think that emotional sentiment is what makes a marriage work. In the Bible, a marriage is a blood covenant. When he and her share spilled blood upon them and it was blessed by God. The next thing that we did was we looked at Ephesians 2 in verse 12. Why don't we turn there together or place it on this screen? Do I have your attention yet? I want you to make sure that you understand that there's a flow to these messages. Ephesians 2.12. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. Without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. How beautiful is that? We were given hope in the blood of Christ. We were given promise in the blood of Christ. We were given citizenship in the blood of Christ. And we were given covenant. This is very important because many of us realize that we did not handle the blood of our bodies correctly. Most of us realized we had an education deficit and Vaikra, the book of Leviticus, was a cure to show us just how precious the blood of Jesus is. Well, in Christ, we now have a covenant and that covenant has beautiful benefits. Would you like to talk about our third message in the series? Would anybody like to move forward or should we just kind of stop here? I don't know what you're planning this afternoon. Our message today is called Afternoon Delight. This is the third message in our marriage and spiritual reproduction series. This phrase could be considered pregnant with meaning. Some will no doubt infer intended implications merely from the embrace of the title. Others will miss the life-giving climactic truths conveyed out of a false sense of passionless piety. Today's message will largely be about an intimate choice. The Bible offers both life and death, a choice for either an afternoon delight or an afternoon filled with spite. As in the other messages in this series, you'll quickly realize that this message is for those who are married to each other, those who are married to Christ, And for those who are contemplating either or the combination of those two marriages, if none of the above applies to you, you should look at a series from July 2015 called STDs, Spiritually Transmitted Disease, because you may have one. I think probably the place for us to start is clearly the 1970s. Yeah? If we start in the 1970s, about one-third of this church was born during that time. You ought to be able to relate to it. Of course, that will leave two-thirds that don't relate to it, and we'll get to you as well. 
When you hear the words afternoon delight, if you were born in the 70s, you might remember the Starland Vocal Band. They're an interesting band. They had a number one hit on the Hot 100 Singles Billboards in July 10th of 1976. They were known for close harmonies and what at the time was considered sexually suggestive wordplay. I want to read to you the first few lines. Considered salacious in 1976. Gonna find my baby, gonna hold her tight. Gonna grab some afternoon delight. My motto has always been when it's right, it's right. Why wait until the middle of a cold, dark night? You know, by today's standard, this song's use of innuendo is fairly tame. Has anybody turned on VH1? Do you remember MTV when they actually played music? Clearly, the Starlight Vocal Band was advocating for spontaneous romantic interludes that did not conform to the restrictions of a traditional workday. Now let's fast forward in time from 1976 to 2013. That way, those of you that were completely in dark with the 70s reference, either because you weren't born yet or you took mind-altering substances that have robbed you of your memory of that time period, I have a musical video for you. Let's play that. Yeah, so turn off the lights. Love. Amen. Y'all ever had a technical difficulty? We're getting it straight, though. It'll take just a second. Who feels really anointed to pray in this moment? Bim. Bim, I can always count on you. Bim, I'm going to toss you the mic. Father, we say this is not foreign to you. Mighty God, we pray for your shalom and your authority, Lord God, to not to move in this place, Lord, to bind up anything that would stop this message from coming forth. So, Father, we say let our praise and our faith rise in this moment, Lord God. Father, would you let your anointing rest in our brothers and our sisters in the booth to figure out exactly what needs to take place for this video to move. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, Lord God, because you are faithful and you are true. In the name of Jesus, we pray. You really want to know what love is? Yeah. Yes, tell us. More than anything in the world, Ron. Well, it's really quite simple. It's kind of like... Gonna find my baby, gonna hold her tight, gonna grab some afternoon delight. My motto's always been, when it's right, it's right. Why wait until the middle of a cold, dark night? When everything's a little clearer in the light of day. And we know the night is always gonna be there anyway. Picking up, he's working up my appetite Looking forward to a little afternoon delight Rubbing sticks and stones together make a spark ignite And the thought of loving you is getting so exciting Skyrockets in flight Afternoon delight You guys have it, I think Afternoon delight I don't know, Ron That sounds kind of crazy Sounds like you have mental problems, man. Yeah, you got mental problems, man. Yeah, it really does. Man. Afternoon delight. 
When I make a phone call here. Now, I have to confess, I've never watched either of those two movies all the way through. But I did feel compelled to attempt both of them at least once. Will Ferrell is immensely popular in our time. I don't gravitate to his kind of humor. I, I don't get it. Having said that, I love to watch my friends laugh at it. The reason that I think that this is so interesting is, did you hear the initial question? And friends, turn back on the lights for us. Thank you. The initial question was, what is love? And Will Ferrell's uh, uh, character, the anchorman, takes a comedic effort in its own way to poke fun at the misappropriated associations between shallow sexual encounters and love. Sadly, the reason that this is funny to most of us is because it's grounded in popular thought. It's an acceptable answer to so many. What is love? Well, it's a romantic interlude in the afternoon. That is a far cry from what the Bible teaches us about love. Now, when I ask what is love, and I'm going to do it many times today, it's my sincerest hope that you're not hearing Hathaway in your mind. You know, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. This is how Pastor Wade began the morning when I told him about what we were preaching about this morning. But as we sit there and look at he and his beautiful bride, we're all aware that Christy is really the 1980s music inspiration in that household. We've started each message in this series with a statement about citizenship. And this is as we move to a much, much more serious topic. We are citizens in the kingdom of God. That's what the blood of Christ has accomplished for us. And because we're citizens in an actual kingdom, there are kingdom laws, kingdom rules, kingdom governance at play. As we begin to answer the question, what is love? Let's turn in our Bill of Rights section of our Constitution to book number Five. That would be Acts. Find Article 22, subsection 28. Acts 22, verse 28. We're going to enter into a discussion about citizenship for a minute. Say there when you're there. Y'all are so funny. Some are ready to smile and have a good time, and some are already. Like, I don't know what kind of church I've come to today. That's all right. We intend to leave you in that suspense right till the end. I've never minded making people uncomfortable. Acts 22, verse 28. Then the commander said, I had to pay a big price for my citizenship. But I was born a citizen, Paul replied. You know, whose citizenship came at the higher price? The Roman centurion or Paul? Well, that kind of depends on whether we're talking about Roman citizenship or Paul's true citizenship, which was in heaven. If we're talking about being born as a Roman citizen, then Paul's birthright cost him nothing. If we're talking about being born again into the kingdom of God, there's an entirely different cost matrix at work. How is a person made a citizen in the kingdom of God? We read it in Ephesians 2.12 a minute ago. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Blood was paid for your citizenship. See, the Roman paid cash for his citizenship. But the citizenship of Paul came at the cost of the life of the Son of God. You know, value was placed upon you. 
Value is placed upon each one of you. That's evidenced by the cost that was paid for you. You were not redeemed with something as carnal as gold or silver. You were redeemed with a perfect, obedient life of the Son of God. Since blood was paid for your citizenship and value was placed on you, when we're answering the question of what is love, one of the places that I think we ought to start is love is the result of a choice to value something. God chose to place value on you because he made you. And because he chose to place value on you, his actions towards you are loving. Do you follow me? Let's go to John 3.16. You'll see it at every baseball game. And it's one of the most quoted and least understood scriptures in all of the Bible. Sermon after sermon has been preached on it. And most miss the point of the first three or four words. It's really interesting. For God so loved the world. When we say that, most people insert themselves right there. For God so loved me. For God so loved Eric, for God so loved Wade, for God so loved JJ, that he gave his only begotten son. That's not what this passage says. It's, it's not even close to what it says. For God so loved the world. Do you catch the difference between loving the world and loving you as an individual? You're a part of a much larger system. When you think of loving the world, we can move on. To say that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. We, we start with the idea that God valued something so much that he was willing to pay an enormous price. Love is the result of a choice to value something so much that you sacrifice for it. What is love? Love is the result of your choice to value something so much that you will sacrifice for it. But that begs the question, what did God value? You've been taught in Sunday school your entire life that it was you that he valued. You've been told things like, if there was nobody else in the world, he would have died for just you. Well, we can argue about the merits of that statement, but what you can't argue about is that is not what John 3.16 says. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world. I want to show you what that word for world is. It is cosmos. Cosmos, according to the Complete Word Study Dictionary, it was authored by Spiros Zadhades, this are his words, not mine, is the world with its primary meaning being order, regular disposition and arrangement. Follow me here. God chose to value the order, the regular disposition, and the arrangement of the world So much that he gave his one and only son that whoever, that's you as individuals, who believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. I want you to understand what that means. God is saving something, yes. He's saving the entire world order. His ordering of the creation, he wants to preserve, purify, protect, and redeem. He wants that. And he starts that process with you. That's important to understand. Your salvation is not just for you or about you. Your salvation is about your place in a much, much larger plan. God's choice to value the order, regular disposition, and arrangement of the world is reflected in what he sacrificed and what he paid to fix it. Starting with 
and starting through you. His love was demonstrated in the sacrifice of his son for you, for the world. Do you feel some sense of responsibility then to the people that are sitting around you? What did God love? He loved his ordered creation. Do you know he's been ordering it since he spoke light into darkness? When his spirit was hovering above the water, what was the state of the world? The Hebrews call it tohu vavohu. Say that with me. It's fun to say. Tohu vavohu. How can you not smile while you're saying tohu vavohu? I was in Germany and saw two five-year-olds that were really pretty terrible children, twins, tear up a room, and the mother walked in and she goes, whew, tohu. In her German slang, which is a leftover from Yiddish, what she was saying is they have laid want and destruction to this room. That was the state of the creation when God began to order it. And he values what his hands made. And he will fight to protect it. And that fight starts with redeeming you. Love is a response to understanding value. When you value something, you sacrifice for it. You pay for it because you value it. How many of you have a car that was purchased in the last two years? In the first two years of the purchase of your automobile, you probably don't park it right next to the shopping cart rack. You probably don't like to follow close behind gravel trucks. I'm in the 19th year of the manufacturer of my vehicle, and I have no concern about any of those things. I could run over a small smart car or a shopping cart and never notice. You teenagers should look out too. But when you have paid an awful lot for something, you tend to value it more. Blood was paid to get you. He valued you. He loves you and he wants you to be a permanent part of his order, his regular disposition and arrangement of the world that he's redeeming. Understand this. You were redeemed into a place in this world order, the world that he is building. In your homes, there is a structure that is supposed to be God's ordained structure. In your relationships, there is an ordained order. God put an order to everything. He arranged first days, then weeks, then months, then years, then weeks of years. He even arranged a jubilee that somebody prophesied about today. God sanctified time to bring order to your life. That's important when we consider the things that we're talking about. Love is the result of a choice to value something so much that you sacrifice it. What he loves is you, but it is your order within the world. Something that he wants to bring about through you, from you, in you. If love is comprised of actions... And those actions are supposed to reflect great value. Then love that cost a person nothing is worth nothing. Oh, how cheap is some love. Now, ladies, I want to talk to you for just a minute. If you're above the age of 12, probably at some point in your life, some little boy professed his love to you. But if his love cost him nothing, then how much was it worth? How many times is love professed, but it's not worth anything in substance? In fact, love professed in secret is worth nothing in public, is it? 
That's why you do wedding ceremonies publicly. That's why everybody should be aware of your commitment so that your commitment's worth something. Because when you commit to something in private, then it's not worth anything to you in public. No one knows of your commitment. It costs you nothing. How worthless is most kinds of love that we seem to think we're experiencing. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because He first loved us. Why do we love? He showed you such love by the sacrifice of His life for you and the cosmos, His order, His arrangement of the world. Now you want to reciprocate by the sacrifice of your life as an expression of love for him and the things that he loves. In other words, if he gave his life for all of the ordered creation and for you, then the natural loving response is that you would give your life for him and the ordered creation that he cares so much about. Do you see why Christianity cannot be selfish? See, Christianity that is not outward focused, that is not moving from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, Christianity that is focused on ordering the creation is not really Christianity. It sees His love, it thinks it's a recipient of His love, but it doesn't reciprocate His love. It's like a child that says, Gimme, gimme, my name is Jimmy. You know, all is about receiving, nothing is about reflecting. Welcome to our present society. This is why we can make fun of a song in 1976 that talks about an afternoon delight and not know what the real meaning of love is. It's why in 2013, the anchorman can talk about love as if it's a romantic interlude. It has no idea that love is rooted in action. We think it's an emotion. His blood is the beginning of fixing everything. Starting with you, but moving to fixing the whole ordered universe. Have I said ordered enough today? Ordered creation. Say it with me. Ordered Ordered. creation. creation. Remember that God loves ordered creations. Nothing about him is in disarray. He's not of two opinions about anything. There is no schism in him. Everything about him is ordered. And when he makes a creation, it is ordered. The book of Revelation is not just the judgment of the world. It is also the redemption of its order, disposition, and arrangement. Something is wrong with the world right now. Can you feel that? Can you see that the nations of the United Nations hate Israel without cause? Can you see that justice is mocked? What is evil is put forth as good and what is, is good is, uh, is, is maligned as evil? Uh, Isaiah said there would be days like this. We would put forth sweet for bitter and bitter for sweet. Something is wrong. But that is not what God is doing in the creation. In fact, Revelation eleven fifteen puts it succinctly. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven. By the way, how many trumpets are there? And this is which trumpet? The last one. The seventh trumpet. Loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the cosmos, the kingdom of the world, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. 
the end and goal of God's plan regarding the cosmos that he so loves is that his dominion is perfectly ordered on earth in the way that he is establishing perfect order in the heavens. This is why Christians are taught by our Messiah to pray. Uh, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. We are praying for the same right order that is in heaven to exist on earth. So that right order has to start inside of us. It has to start inside of our marriages. It has to start inside of the way that we raise our children, the way we conduct ourselves in a workplace, the way that we interact with society as a whole. If redemption starts with us, then right order has to start with us. The reason that I'm going through that is that the blood of your covenant, citizenship and right order with God in the kingdom is the blood of Christ. And it's the same blood that was shed to put the right system, the world system in right order. God is waiting for the kingdom of God to be established on earth. That should be our daily prayer. You know, Tolstoy said everyone dreams of changing the world No one starts with themselves. Well, he never met a real Christian. Real Christians start with ourselves, start with our marriages, and start with our children. If there is going to be right order, it will come from our right action. Say right order order. comes from right action. action. See, you getting right is supposed to produce life and right order everywhere else. When you're in line with the right order of the creation, it always produces life. It produces cultivation. Each of us starts in judgment, but we were brought into life in right order. The cosmos goes through the same process. That is what all of the book of Genesis is about. Taking the chaos and bringing it into right order. Did you ever notice when Jesus fed 5,000 people how he did it? He didn't just throw 5,000 pieces of bread out there. How did he do it? He sits them down. He puts them in groups of hundreds, fifties, and tens. He brings order to the masses before he feeds the masses. The feeding is a byproduct of things being in right order. How important is it that we get our homes in right order? Love is the result of a choice to value something so much that you sacrifice for it. You will never bring your home into right order until you understand that you have a choice to value something so much that you sacrifice for it. These days we say, I fell out of love. These days we say, our love just grew cold. We're just different people. Let's go get a no-fault divorce. That's an oxymoron, friends. It's also a moron, not just an oxymoron. Every part about that statement is wrong. Nothing about it is right. Everyone is at fault in a divorce. Second Corinthians 5.14 says, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. This has become churchly language to us, but we need to examine what it is actually compelling us to do. It says, He valued the ordered creation enough to sacrifice for it, including us. That's love, friends. And now we value him and the ordered creation enough to sacrifice for it. He died for us, so we die for him. You know what's wrong in so many marriages? One or both of you will not die. 
will we'll not do it. You're so alive to your own will, so alive to your own ideas. It's never any more evident than in the way that you raise your children. Exalt your ideas, exalt your likes, your preferences, and your emotions above what the Word of God says. Do you know if you do not discipline your children, you don't love them? That's because when you love something, it's the result of a choice to value it and sacrifice for it. That's why mommies and daddies used to say, now this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. They were making a sacrifice. Nobody wants to stop what they're doing and have to discipline someone. But it's a sacrifice worth making. It's reflective of love. Love is the result of a choice to value something so much that you sacrifice for it. Love is not an emotion. I'm going to prove that to you as we move on. Emotions are fleeting. Emotions are chemically induced responses. I'm glancing around the room and I'm seeing men and women of every age. Men... There is no easier way to induce a chemical reaction in you than by sight. A certain set of symmetry, a certain set of curvature, and immediately there's an adrenaline spike that can be measured medically in your mind. That's not love. It's a chemical response. Ladies, touch releases oxytocin in you. It's a feeling of bondedness. But it's not love. To be touched does not make you love. It releases a chemical reaction that causes you to feel bonded, but it's not love. You can become emotionally drawn to anyone in this way, to any symmetry, to any curves, to any rippled abs. There's such pressure on ladies these days that when you go to a supermarket and you look at the magazines to your left and right, there are airbrushed alien-looking freaks. They have the lips of ducks, the tails of whales. I'm going to stop with alliteration before I get myself into trouble. You know why this is? Is because our connections are not spiritually based. They're chemically based. And the lady is worried that if she stops stimulating the sight of the guy for even a second, then their connection will be lost because it was always that superficial. That's not love. Ladies are giving themselves cancer, stressing themselves out, trying to keep up with chemical stimulation. Now, I'd ask some of you guys to stand up for a minute, but I don't want to do that to you. Very rarely does the same guy look in the mirror and realize that his six-pack has become an entire keg. (laughs) That double standard is incredible. We have become chemical addicts, and that is not biblical love. The cosmetics industry is based on monopolizing and gaining this system, and I'm not about to become an ugly Pentecostal. If you're pretty without makeup, don't wear it. If you need it, then praise God. We're glad that he provided it in this time. I've never been interested in ugliness. Having said that, your worth should not come from the color of your lipstick. With this chemical bonding, you can fall out of love. When the chemical stimulation fades or you find another source of new stimulation, what happens? Well, it produces a society exactly like ours. About as committed to each other as they are chemically driven. 
In other words, because you value something, you make a sacrificial choice to be loving towards it is our goal. Love is the result of a choice to value something so much that you sacrifice for it in your actions habitually. See, love is not a momentary feeling. It's not a warm, fuzzy experience. That's true of our love for God. That's true of our love for Jesus, the Messiah, the incarnate deity. It is true for our love of each other. Love is not momentary. Love is a choice to value something so much that you sacrifice for it in your actions habitually. That's how you know the difference between a chemical fascination and a Christ-like commitment. God values you. God chose to sacrifice for you. God's actions towards you are an expression of his love. His actions continue towards you to this day. Hebrews says he lives to make intercession for you. So it is habitual daily action. In other words, because you value something, you sacrifice for it every day. What is love? Well, Will Ferrell was wrong. Not saying he had a bad idea. I'm just saying he was wrong. I want to help you with the difference between emotion that people call love and biblical love from God's perspective. Let's ask a a fair biblical question. If God treated you as he felt emotionally about your sin, how would that work out for you? While you're contemplating it, let me read you a little hint. This comes from Psalm 5 and verse 5. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. Anybody in here ever struggled with pride? I mean, have you been prideful this month? You hate all who do wrong. Well, good thing nobody in here has done anything wrong. Consider these two emotions that God is talking about. He's saying that he hates all who do wrong. That is the emotion that God feels towards those who do wrong. People say, no, 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 no. He hates the sin. He loves the sinner. That is not what that verse says. The sixth one is even worse. You destroy those who tell lies, bloodthirsty and deceitful men, the Lord abhors. Well, how is it that he can hate someone because of their actions and be loving towards them? He intends to change them, number one. Love is a choice to express sacrifice because of value. Love is not an emotion. God can hate someone and something they're doing and love them enough to change them. Because he valued you, he chose to lay down his life for you. That is love. He's doing it continually through his intercession for you. Love is the result of a choice to to value something so much that you sacrifice for it in your actions habitually. Look at your your wife and say habitually. Now, there may have been another word that you said at some point (laughs) that didn't express habitual love, continual love, regular love. You need to understand something. Love has nothing to do with the way that you feel. It may affect the way that you feel, but it is not driven by the way that you feel. It has to do with value and sacrifice. Are you ready to go deeper? See, I'm trying to get you to engage with me. Are you bored? Some of you, I think, are hearing me, but you're not listening to me. 
So I'm going to bring it down to a level that just can't be denied. When you see a law in the United States, I don't know, a law like you must pay your taxes. Does it matter whether you feel like paying your taxes? Does it matter whether it gives you a warm, fuzzy feeling to pay your taxes or it fills you with dread to pay your taxes? Does it matter? Will your feelings keep you from being prosecuted for tax evasion? Turn with me to Romans 13. Let's pick up in verse 8 and see how the Bible speaks about love. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Romans 13 in verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the what? Has fulfilled the what? See, love is a law in the kingdom of God, not a feeling. Laws don't have feelings. I mean, you may not like a law, but the speed limit, for instance, has no feeling. 55 miles an hour doesn't feel bad or good about it. It is simply a law, a command. Love is a debt that you owe. Now, let's play that one out for a second. Debts are debts whether you feel like paying them or not. A debt represents a choice that you have already made and now your actions must fulfill that choice. Do you understand that you have already chosen to love what God loves? So it doesn't matter whether you feel like doing it or not, does it? It is a debt that you say, oh, man, do you want God to come and collect on his debt? Try not paying your mortgage because you don't feel connected to it anymore. I tell you what, call up your mortgage company and say, I've just fallen out of love with my house. Will they care at all? And they shouldn't because that's not how debts work. The Bible describes love as both a law and a debt, but it is not describing it as a fleeting emotion. You valued the house, and so you made a choice to schedule payments in an ongoing manner, and the required action is a debt you owe. It is not a feeling to be satisfied. Are you starting to get me here? Love is an act of the will, not of the emotion. It represents a choice to value what God values. Love is the result of... Of a choice to value something so much that you sacrifice for it in your actions habitually because God does. Are you following me here? He so loved the creation that he made a choice to sacrifice for it. That included and started with you. Now, for you to love God, it requires you to make a choice. To value what God values so much that you sacrifice for it habitually. Now tell me, is it possible to fall out of that kind of love? No, that would be falling out of faithfulness, not falling out of love. See, we say, well, we just grew apart. We don't love each other anymore because it sounds better than walking up and saying, I am unfaithful to God and to man. But that is what it is. Can I tell you that in the most loving situation, as we describe it, there are moments that are not loving? 
My beautiful little flower once threw a cell phone that stuck in the wall beside my head. And I deserved every bit of it. I mean, the grace was that she missed because she throws like a girl. I once stood naked and bleeding on a waterbed on a second floor of a building that the waterbed wasn't supposed to be on while she stormed out of the room and I was helpless. I mean, we know exactly what it is to have moments that are not loving. And you don't admit to them. You say, oh, no, I love my child. No matter what, I love my child. There are moments you do not feel the emotion of love towards your child. My little ones could feel, you know, when a diaper says, you know, 15 to 20 pounds, that's about all of the excrement it'll hold, 15 to 20 pounds. After that, it works up towards their shoulder blades. I didn't always feel loving towards my children in those moments. But love is not a feeling. Love is very much a choice to value something so much that you sacrifice for it in your actions habitually because God does. You know, Jesus had an awful lot to say about this subject. He may have preached on it more than any other subject. He made a choice to value you, and that choice was expressed in his sacrifice. This is God's love. You owe him a debt to make the same choice. The world is broken, and he loves it. You must choose to sacrifice to fix it. I want to run through a couple that are funny. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will obey what I command. Play that out as an emotion. He would have said, if you feel like it, obey what I command. Love is not an emotion. In this verse, it's an obedient action. Love is expressed through obedient action. Say, love Love is expressed expressed through obedient action. Now imagine that you were looking at somebody in the sight of God saying, I fell out of love with you. What are you really saying? I've lost a desire for obedient action. Are you beginning to see why we've messed with the wording? John 15, 12. My command is this. Love each other as, same manner, as I have loved you. See, commands do not have feelings. They have to do with actions. If you love him, it shows up in acting like he acts. John 15, 17. This is my command. Love each other. We love because he loved us. We make a choice to love through sustained actions because we value him and the things he values. Love is the result of a choice to value something so much that you sacrifice for it in your actions habitually because that's what God does. Now, we learned last week that love was not the foundation of marriage. Blood is the foundation of marriage. I won't go through that whole teaching again. It was uncomfortable the first time, but it was worth doing. How many of you learned something about the way that God sent women into the world hermetically sealed? That only her high priest, the one man on the planet, was allowed to tear that veil. Since we learned that, then you might modify this statement to say, love is the result of a choice to value the blood covenant So much that you sacrifice for it in your actions habitually because God does. See, 
We're commanded to love one another. We're commanded to love our neighbor. But how much more somebody that you share a blood covenant with? Why do you love Jesus? Because he shed his blood for you. Why are you supposed to love your spouse? Because we have a blood covenant with each other. What does that have to do with having a bad day? What does that have to do with having a bad year, growing apart, being emotionally detached, not having your needs fulfilled? What does that have to do with your commitment to the blood of your covenant? Love is the result of a choice to value the blood of the covenant so much that you will sacrifice for it, the blood of the covenant, in your actions habitually, Because that's what God does. Turn with me to Mark 5 and verse 44. And let's see what happens as we just examine things like the Sermon on the Mount. Say there when you're there. Oh, I've upset you. Did you think I was here to entertain you? For me, humor is just grease so that I can squeeze in those wheels of crushing conviction. Matthew 5:44 But I tell you love your enemies Yeah that's it I know some of you are still turning you're like but wait wait isn't there more well have we got past the first part Who feels like loving an enemy I mean anybody in here wake up and say today With all of my emotional being, with my mind, will, and emotions, I am enthused with the idea of loving an enemy. Of course not. That is the most ridiculous thing you could ever say if love were a feeling. But if love is not a feeling, if love is the result of a choice to value the blood covenant so much that you sacrifice for it, when you see an enemy, you see a chance to sacrifice for the blood covenant. Through your actions, habitually, because God does. Are you following me now? Is it okay if I teach you today? Or would you rather just come in, sleep, eat some donuts and leave? See, I'm hoping that in teaching you, we will find life and live in the life that we're supposed to have. Because I can tell you all around us is a disordered creation. And God will bring order to your life. He'll bring order to your marriage. He'll bring order to your home and children. And then he'll bring order to every home that touches your home. How about this one? The second part. He says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Who feels like loving someone who is persecuting them? See, it's a choice, not a feeling. It's a choice because you're in a blood covenant with the one who asked you to do it. Why are you loving someone who persecutes you? It's not out of a great, profound emotional response to them. In fact, you'll have to overcome your emotional response to be able to do it. It's out of a great love for the Lord and what He loves. During a very damaged moment in my life, I found myself on the ground praying, all alone, just honest speech before the Lord. I said, I love you, Lord, and I don't want to fall away. I'm clinging to you, Lord. You are everything to me, but I don't love the people that you love. You ever been there? Persecuted, spit on, dealt with badly? Or maybe you were just corrected and you hated. I don't know. It's easy to confuse those things when you're a selfish, carnal mutant. But I was realizing that something was wrong because I loved the Lord, but I did not love what the Lord loves. And those two things are inseparable. 
When you are right with God, He puts you right with fellow man. It is not possible to have a good relationship with the Lord and a bad relationship with the people that He loves. That's not possible. If you walk in the light as He is in the light, you have fellowship one with another. Right relationship with Him puts you in right relationship with each other. I realized I had a problem. And I had to rethink what love is. What I was actually saying to him was not that I was not willing to obey him, not that I was not going to do the right thing. I was expressing the tear in my nature that I didn't feel like doing the right thing. Love has nothing to do with the way that you feel. The verse goes on to say that you may be sons of your father in heaven. Remember, he can hate the wicked and love them enough to save the world. This is the marriage and the spiritual reproduction series. Our message today is called Afternoon Delight. Why are we talking about loving enemies? Because on any given week, your spouse will be your enemy at least twice. (laughs) I see some of you have had the same experience. I might should say on any given day, she might be your enemy twice or he might be. When you... Live with each other, you will say and do things that cause feelings of hurt to each other. Your feelings will come and go, but that has nothing to do with love. Love is the result of a choice to value the blood covenant so much that you sacrifice for it in your actions because that's what God does. See, on any given day, how many of you men, uh, men, Get me here. Make eye contact with me. We'll pretend she's not here. We're going to ignore the fact that you will not ask for directions and all the other stereotypes. How many times you've been upset with her just because she didn't agree with you? She took someone else's side in an argument and they weren't present. Like you were just explaining yourself in the righteous indignation of your cause and she offered a different point of view and you found yourself getting angry with her. So you felt extreme love in that moment? No, not at all. That's not the emotion that you're feeling because love's not an emotion. See, so many times... Ladies, how many times have you asked your husband, do you love me? Do you love me? I mean, there might be, you know, a certain cyclical thing that happens that causes you to ask more than you normally would. A certain feeling of insecurity that makes you crave connection. And so you ask, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? That is an emotional response. Nothing in your situation has changed. The proof of that is that my wife can ask me at three if I love her. And I say, yes, baby, more than anything. And at 3.05, she wants to hear it again. What changed in those four minutes? Not a thing changed. We're emotionally unstable and that's not what love is. Do you believe me that that's not what love is? Your love is the choice to honor the blood of your covenant through your sustained actions. We're either going to honor the blood of the covenant or we're not. Your love places value and sacrifice on what God values and sacrifices for. Love is an action, not an emotion. Do you know that the Jewish nation has always had this right? You you may not have noticed this. Lately, Jews have been in the news in Hollywood for all of the wrong reasons. But Jews that controlled Hollywood used to put out movies that were based on Jewish values. It was very interesting. And those Jewish values most often came from the Tanakh. When you examine the word love in the Tanakh, you find something. And we'll get to that in a minute. 
How many of you have ever heard of the movie or the play Fiddler on the Roof? I want to play for you a discussion that Tevi has with his wife about love. And I'm going to play it for you because it's a great example of a traditional Jewish thought about love. And what is happening just prior to this scene is their daughter is upset that she's having an arranged marriage because she doesn't know if she will love him. And this causes the husband, the the father, to ask the question, what is love? Let's play that clip. Love. Golda, do you love me? Do I what? Do you love me? Do I love you? Well? With our daughters getting married and this trouble in the town, you're upset, you're worn out. Go inside, go lie down. Maybe it's indigestion. Uh, no, Golda, I'm asking you a question. Do you love me? You're a fool. I know. But do you love me? Do I love you? Well... For 25 years I've washed your clothes, cooked your meals, cleaned your house, given you children, milked your cow. After 25 years, why talk about love right now? Golden, the first time I met you was on our wedding day. I was scared. I was shy. I was nervous. So was I. But my father and my mother said we'd learn to love each other. And now I'm asking, Golda, do you love me? I'm your wife. I know. But do you love me? Do I love him? Well? For 25 years I've lived with him, fought with him, starved with him. 25 years my bed is his. If that's not love, what is? That you love me. I suppose I do. And I suppose I love you too. It doesn't change a thing. But even so. After 25 years It's nice to Amen. It's a sweet scene, isn't it? Think of the underlying implications. Their marriage was based on mutual sacrifice because they valued each other. For 25 years, their actions were loving. They had not considered whether or not there was an emotional uh, response to it. And of course there was. Because right feelings will follow right actions. But feelings don't produce right actions. Do you understand the difference? Right feelings will follow right actions. But right feelings don't always produce Right actions. See, love is an action that results from the choice to value the blood covenant so much that you sacrifice for it continually because God does. 
I have changed this definition and added to it and added to it and added to it. This is it in its final form. I would encourage you to take a picture of it, to download it when it is online, to think through it. While that is still on the screen, I want to tell you that I had a team this morning. We're, we're, we're that kind of church now. We have a team of people studying. And as I was bouncing these ideas off of them, I said, guys, I want you to survey the scripture. You go from Older Testament to Newer. Break it up in any way you like. Law, prophets, writings. Look in every area and see if you can find me examples of love as a function that is not demonstrable through action. I want to show you the chart that they came through. We obviously won't have time to go through every scripture. But starting in Genesis, working our way down. In Genesis 22, love was freely given, not withheld. He said, but wait a minute, how's that an action? The way that you know that Abraham loved God was what he did, not how he felt. It was his actions. The whole book of James is dedicated to this. Moving down to Daniel. God is a loving God who keeps his covenant of love. That's not a feeling. It's about a commitment because he values something. It's a choice to redeem. It's a choice to value and do it continually. As we move through the New Testament, loving your enemies is not about a feeling as we've already discussed. All the way down to the book of Revelation, restoring what is broken is not about an emotional response. It is about valuing something enough to sacrifice for it. Now, I want to take a very familiar passage and read it in a very unfamiliar way. Is that okay? Or would you like to hear the same old thing in church every week? Okay, our familiar passage is Galatians 5.22. Go ahead and say you're there when you're there. Everybody's going to want to get to Galatians 5. If you're somebody who gets tired of turning to scriptures, man, you have come to the wrong church. Galatians 5.22, familiar passage, get ready to hear it in an unfamiliar way. But the fruit of the Spirit is... That's interesting. The fruit, the byproduct, the work product of the Spirit is love. Let's talk about those implications for a second while you keep your finger there. Sex is not making love. The 2011 NIV describes Adam lying with Eve as making love. What a ridiculous translation. Sex is not making love. Let's, let's start with that. When someone says, I love you, baby, make love to me, understand the inherent contradiction there. If he already loves you as he claims, what would you be making? I thought he already said he loves you. I love you, so let's make love. Sex is not making love. Sex alone can bond chemically. It can cause an emotional response, but it cannot manufacture love. Two lost people having sex does not result in a choice to value the blood covenant so much that you'll sacrifice for it continually because that's what God does. This is why they fall in and out of love. What they're calling love is a chemical attraction. Love is the fruit of the spirit of holiness, the Ruach HaKodesh, where the spirit 
of holiness is he causes love. This is why Galatians says, but the fruit of the spirit is love. The spirit of holiness will lead a person to choose what God chooses, to value what God values, to sacrifice for what God sacrifices for. The spirit will cause you to love as a sustained action. See, the work product of the spirit in your life is that you begin to love like God. That's why the world can't give each other love. In fact, if you consider some of what is here, it gets downright ugly. The Spirit will never cause you, ever, to sleep together randomly, to bump and grind, to get it on, to fool around, to hook up, to kick it, or as the young people are starting to say these days, to Netflix and chill. The Spirit will never do that. That is not the same thing as making a choice to value something and sacrifice for the blood of the covenant continually for the rest of your life because that's what God does. See, copulation will cause two people to feel bonded, but unless it represents that choice, say it with me, choice. Choice. Because the blood and its great value sacrificially to act in faithfulness to their newly formed blood covenant, then it is a fickle bond. A bond that is not based on the blood covenant will not last. Do you want to know that that's true for sure? Look to your left and your right on your street. Not in here because I love you too much to hurt your feelings that way. The statistics in this country are, is that when you look to the left, they're divorced. When you look to the right, they're currently cheating on their spouse. Currently. Right now, this moment. What does that mean? That means that we have called love something that is not love. I want to show you something. When the Spirit of God is present in both spouses and they have sex, the Spirit empowers a lifetime of loving actions that flow from the choice they have made to value and sacrifice for the sanctity of the blood covenant they share. Love is the byproduct of the spirit, not of sex. That's why it's so important that it be the spirit of God that leads you into your sexual encounter. When it's the spirit of the world, it becomes something entirely different. Lost people have sex and they feel a chemically bonded inducement. They call it love, but it's selfish. It's not selfless. It flows from the flesh and not from the spirit. They gratify their desires. They manipulate and control. They use guilt, obligation, or lust to get what they want. In most cases, it's a transaction for men and women of every age where one gets pleasure and the other gets attachment, but neither endure. Maybe that's why the same place your finger is in your Bible, Galatians 5, says this, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. What's the very first one? Sexual immorality. That is an entry into the Holy of Holies that was not prescribed by God as the high priest through a veil that only he allowed you to open. Do you understand how serious that is? In biblical eschatology, this is called the abomination that causes desolation. Do you know what it is in your personal life? 
an abomination that causes desolation. He goes on to say impurity and debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition. Oh man, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. You mean you can have sex, but it won't make love? You can have an orgy with many, many partners and you'll experience something, but it won't be love? No, it's the furthest thing from love. If sex made love, then sex with many people should cause you to love lots of people. But it doesn't, does it? It disorders your life. It brings it into tohu and vavohu. It takes you into a perpetual state of darkness. And God's word enters our lives to bring light, to bring order, to bring forth something cultivated, something beautiful. All of those things that are works of the flesh flow right out of selfish ambition, out of envy, hatred, discord. None of them will make love. Love is the byproduct of the spirit of holiness. Have we defined love for you? Then let's move on. The Hebrew words for love are demonstrated through actions. These are the most common Hebrew words for love. Notice the first three are verbs. Uh, Ahab is um, by far the most common. You can't tell if somebody ahabs except by the way they act. Yadam literally means to experience each other. It's a physical action. Uh, Shakab is, is literally the Hebrew word for intercourse. These are actions. When you look at Racham or Achava or Chesed, they're nouns, but the only way that you know that they're love is by what is going on. You don't know that the noun is happening unless, for instance, chesed, loving kindness. How do you know if someone is feeling loving kindness? By the way they act. They, God is showing chesed. But if he didn't show it, you wouldn't know it was there. Are you following me? If you move to Greek, it gets uh, equally clear. Most of you are familiar with agapeo. Some of you are familiar with the other five or six words that can be translated this way. Look how the Vines Expository Dictionary says this. Love known by the action it prompts. Speaking of the love that God has towards his son or towards men. Always used to speak of God's love or loving God. In other words, when God loves, it is an action on your behalf. Not a feeling. When you love, it has to be the same way. Now, if you consider some of the other Greek words, I don't want to go through them all. Let me just say how fleeting they are. Let's talk eros for a minute. Eros is when somebody has a lustful feeling towards someone else. And I hope every one of you has eros towards the person you're married to. But... How fleeting is Eros? Have you ever been full of Eros and something happened, an argument started, and it flew out the window right away? You know, it's like turning off a microwave or unplugging a crock pot. You know, it's just not going to happen now. Can you count on Eros? Do you see how fleeting Eros is? That's not how, how God expresses love, and it's not how we're to express love, although it is a normal feeling. Phileo, when we're talking about the way two friends interact, what happens between two friends when trust is violated? It goes out the window. You're not sure you love each other anymore. When you talk about phileo, we can do this all day long, the way a son and father honor each other. What happens when paternity is in question? 
You, do, do you see what I'm saying? All of those are so conditional. It would be more honest for people to stand up at their wedding and say, I promise to Eros you for as long as I feel like it. That would be a whole lot more honest. But the love of God looks at people who have already broken trust, who are already adulterous, who are already covered in darkness, and says, you know what? I value the order of this world enough to change you, to redeem you, to have loving kindness displayed continually before you. That's what a husband is supposed to have for a wife. And then the wife will learn to reciprocate it to the husband. Husband, if you are standing back the coward of your home rather than the captain of your home, then you're waiting for her to go first and you'll reciprocate. (laughs) That makes you the woman. God made you to go first. He gave you His Word first. He put you in His presence first. He made you to go first. And if you don't like what you're getting from her, it's because she hasn't learned to reflect what you're not shining See, when you start to learn about the order of a home, then we're talking about more than sex today. Although I do find it rather interesting to be able to preach about sex in a mixed crowd of every age. The Hebrews talked about these things openly. And so their children didn't grow up looking on smartphones trying to find out what their parents were too cowardice to talk to them about. Marriage must be based on a blood covenant. That's what love is. Love is an action that results from the choice to value the blood covenant so much that you sacrifice for it continually because that's what God does. The spirit-empowered choice to honor the blood is where the force of biblical love flows from. In week one, we talked about male leadership in a home. What kind of things a man must master before he's married. In week two, we talked about the female body and all that the marriage symbolizes. The sanctity of the marriage covenant. Now here we are in week three discussing right order in your marriage and in the creation. Value. Say it with me. Value. Value. Lifetime commitment. commitment. Sacrifice. See, value, lifetime, commitment, and sacrifice must precede sex so that sex is an expression of actual biblical love. That is the order. That's the order that God loves. God loves order. 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, For God is not a God of disorder, but a God of order, a God of shalom, a God of peace. He has a prescribed way. You couldn't just stroll into the Holy of Holies. Even if the man destined to go there, the one-time priest walked in on an unappointed day, he would drop dead. If he went in in an unworthy manner, he would drop dead. They literally tied a cord to his foot and put bells on him in case he was killed. What is God trying to teach us? Sex was a beautiful, beautiful gift given to renew your commitment to each other. That's also why when you're angry, you want to withhold it. That's not love. When we obey God's order, then the Spirit will cause the chemical bonds to become a spiritual union. Now, I'm a little deeper than some of you, and I know that. So I'm going to keep saying these things. I'm going to go over it again and again. When we obey God's order, then the Spirit will cause the chemical bonds to become a spiritual union. But disobeying God's order will only release chemicals that will fade. 
They'll leave long-lasting bonds that hurt because it's not a spiritual union. When we obey God's order, say God's order, then the spirit will cause the chemical bonds to become a spiritual union. A man and woman must make a choice to value the blood covenant of Christ so much that they make a blood covenant between each other. If they no longer have blood to offer each other, Christ will lend you his. And then they sacrifice continually for it because that's what God does. That's what love is. That's not what Ron Burgundy was singing about. See, to say you fell out of love is the most cowardice way you could possibly say, I became an unfaithful toad. Unfaithful first to God and secondly to my spouse. To begin to say, well, what they did has nothing to do with what you did. Did Jesus wait for the bride to love him before he loved her? See, your obligation is to the blood, not to the person. It's your obligation to the blood that causes you to feel an obligation to the person. Do you understand that? The more we begin to see the right order, the more you can move towards life. This is not about what you have done today. This is about what you will do today. We are a Gentile horde with the exception of a few beautiful people in here that have the privilege of having descended from the same ancestry as Jesus. The rest of us are Gentile dogs. But that's not how God sees us. He adopted us. His blood caused us to be treated exactly as citizens. You talk about a people not looking for God that were found by Him. That is us. How much more precious should the blood be to us? It's brought us near. It is our covenant with him and with each other. When the situation is two spirit-filled people with a blood covenant, then sex becomes a renewal of the choice to sacrifice for that one and only person. Again and again and praise God again. The whole idea is that every time that you come together, you are renewing the covenant that God himself struck between the two of you. How precious is that? Now, if you think I'm being dirty, you're not deep enough. But in some sense, a married couple being intimate with each other is to the marriage what communion is to your relationship to Jesus. You are dying to each other That you might live anew. Has that described your marriage? Has that described your marriage to your spouse? Has that described your marriage to Christ? In your relationships with other people. Do you expect them to die or do you die? I want to talk to you about Eden for a second. I introduced in the very first message. Which may be too much for some of you to remember. Some variable meanings of Eden. Some will think it's liberal Bible scholarship, but you see, I picked the most conservative Hebrew lexicons you can pick. I listed them and they're online for you to find. Eden has a variety of meanings. It means a physical location on the planet for sure, but more than that, it meant the presence of God. Because the presence of God was pleasurable, the word Eden is used to describe delightfulness, pleasure, and and in Genesis 18, it even describes the pleasure of sexual Interaction between husband and wife. 
Let's talk about Eden. Eden, in some sense, is when a high priest is led into the Holy of Holies to experience the blessings that heaven is giving to the earth. The height of a matrimonial experience is the height of man's experience in his relationship with the Lord. God enthroned on a marriage. Now do you see why the world's trying to pervert it so? Do you see why it's mocked and ridiculed? And the single most streamed thing on the internet worldwide is perverting this principle. See, the result of that high priest entering the Holy of Holies and God being throned on the marriage is that the result is a spiritual connection between the creator, the male, and the female. It's just like they were back in Eden for just a little while. Do you know that's what's supposed to be happening? I don't think that's what they were singing about when they sang Afternoon Delight. But it certainly would make a delightful afternoon, wouldn't it? To reconnect with the one that you love, meaning Jesus, and the one he has caused you to love, meaning your wife. Do you need to reconnect with both God and man today? Men and women, whether you experience an Afternoon Delight or experience an Afternoon of Spite is entirely dependent Upon your faithfulness. Love's got not anything to do with it. You can fall out of love. At least as an emotion. But you'll never fall out of biblical love. You can't fall out of an action that results from a choice to value the blood covenant. So much that you sacrifice for it continually. Because that's what God does. You don't fall out of that. You're either faithful to it or you're not faithful to it. How many of you want to be faithful in all of God's house? You know, if you have your right hand up now, you want to be faithful in all God's house. If you feel that way really strongly, put up your left hand too. See, you're now halfway to being spirit filled. If, <laughs> if you want the whole thing, all you have to do is now ask. Your whole body's making a cup and he'll fill it from the heavens. <laughs> I'm sorry. I like to do that for Baptist people in the crowd. I was once a cessationist too until it happened to me and uh, it all changed. Adonai's love for the ordered creation, the cosmos, means that when he redeemed you, he expects you to follow his order. He ordered the days, the weeks, the months, the years, and even the weeks of years. He established an order for the development of love. Have you been searching for love and you never quite found it? Maybe you haven't been following the right order. It has to be an action that results from a choice to value the blood of a covenant so much that you sacrifice for it continually because God does. See, to say I've never been in love means you've never valued anything enough to sacrifice for it. To say I, I've never really experienced the kind of love that I see the two of you have means you've not experienced Christ. So many people think that they have an affection for Christ because they experienced a chemical release at an altar. In a warm, fuzzy, emotional moment because the music was right, because the atmosphere was right, they rushed to an altar. Maybe they filled out a salvation card and they promised that they would love him forever, but it wasn't any truer than the seventh grade boy that told you the same thing. You don't expect the seventh grade boy to be serious, but somehow or another we think God took you serious in your one-time chemical reaction at an altar. I don't believe it. 
I believe love is a sustained action. And if you love him, you will walk as he walked. If you're not walking as he walked, then guess what that means? He established an order for the development of your home. That's not something I want to teach on a great deal today, but I do want to read you Corinthians 11.3. Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Let me put that for you in very easy terms. The order of a home is God, Christ, man, woman. God likes order. He likes order so much that he gave his son to save the ordered world. If you want God to flow in the creation, flow in your home, flow in your life, you have to get the order of your love right. You have to get the order of your home right. You have to get the order of raising your children right. Men and women, do you want an afternoon delight? How about an afternoon delight? I've been saying afternoon delight, and you probably heard that as something after 12 that was pleasant. What I was actually trying to describe is an afternoon, the Hebrew letter, N-U-N, delight. There is a message in the Hebrew letter, noon, that cannot be missed. I want to start with that principle for our closing. Moses was an exemplary leader in the foundation of Israel. He gets an accommodation from Adonai that is unique in all of the Torah. How would you like God to say something about you in the word of God that is said about nobody else until Jesus Christ comes? What an accommodation. On this screen, let's put Numbers 12, 6. He said, Listen to my words. When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant, Moses. He is faithful in all my house. Say, he is is. faithful. faithful. With him, I speak face to face. Clearly, not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, Moses? This is such an interesting thing. It relates to the letter noon, but it relates to the phrase, a faithful servant in all my house. That's verse 7. Leave verse 7 on the screen as we speak about this. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Among the 22, there are five special letters. Say special. Five always has to do with grace, and I don't have time to teach on that at this moment. But among these five special letters... They're special because they have an initial form and they have a final form. Let's put those five letters here. So when you look at the sod, the fe, the noon, the mem, and the cough, you are looking at these in their final form. That is not what they look like initially. And what I mean is, if they appear in the beginning of the word, they take on one form. But if they appear at the end of the word, they take on another form. There's a transformation in the letter from the beginning to the end, just like there's a transformation in the creation from beginning to end. There's a transformation in you from beginning to end. I was speaking with a new Christian here this morning at the altar. And in the last week, I've seen such change in his life. He's disappointed it's not coming faster. And I'm amazed at how fast it's happening. We're proud of you, Lynn. There is an initial form of the letter, but that is not its final form. There's an initial form, 
But that's not its final form. It turns out that the word faithful, right here, Niman, has, Hebrew is written from right to left, a noon beginning the word. It's what looks like a backward C there. The noon is bent over. And there's a reason that it is bent over. The Hebrew sages say about this verse that the noon is bent over in its initial form because the state of the perfect leader, Moses, they considered to be faithful in all God's house, a perfect leader. The sages say all leadership starts with humility. See, when I say the head of of Christ is God and the head of a man is Christ and the head of a woman is a man. Some men begin to swell and they think, oh yeah, I'm the head. All leadership starts with humility. What comes next in this word, Niman, the noon, begins to spell the word faithful. When a man is humble and faithful... The last noon, called the Sophet noon, is upright. The Jews actually use a slightly different word for that. But it means strength, upright. It goes from bent over to upright. Because when a man is humble before God and he's faithful, God always raises him up. This letter goes through the same transformation that you will go through if you learn to love appropriately. When you sacrifice, when you value, when you commit for a lifetime, the humility that causes that always raises you up. Now, this gets, this gets way out there. You ready to go super deep? Two of you are. Some of you are scared. You're like, I don't know what pastor's going to say, and I brought a guest. I, I got it. I tell you what, I won't say it. I'll just put a picture on the screen. Let's move to our next picture. What you see is the erect noon on the right. What you see in the middle is the noon in its initial bent over form. And what you see as Moses wrote the noon. See, Moses is writing Numbers 12, which is such an interesting thing, right? Moses is writing about Moses that he was faithful as a servant. And it's one of the few words in all of the Bible that begins and ends with a noon. And the first noon is in the... Uh, modern uh, initial form. The last noon is in the soffit form. It starts bent over and humble. It ends up strong, tall. And when Moses wrote noon in the pictographic Paleo-Hebrew, I don't know what that looks like. But I can tell you that it meant sun, air, continuation, or seed. What do you think the Lord is trying to tell us? That when humble men will lead their homes rightly, God will raise them up and it will produce life like the world has never seen. See, God loves an ordered creation. He loves His cosmos. And He knew to fix His cosmos, He needed to start with you. And that if you would be corrected, if you would be brought into right order, if you would order your home rightly, if you would get your shalom right before God, then you would have the tools to fix the world. He would take a humble people, He would raise them up into strength, and He would give them heirs and sons that would do the same. Oh, saints, you ought to hear hope in that today. 
Just as there is an order in the creation that God loves, an order in love, an order in the home, there is an order in the male leadership that God loves. The humble leader, the initial noon, who is a faithful man, Niman, the word faithful. So God makes him upright and strong, the final form of the noon. This is the result that brings an heir or a son into the world. We're birthing the body of Christ. You know, I don't want to get into vowel points, but when you look at the vowel points on it, it makes a little crown on top of the erect noon. It's incredible. You can't make this stuff up. It's almost as if God was completely unashamed to interlace messages on every level. Have you ever watched a Disney movie these days? The children are watching it at one level, the teenagers at one level, and the older people are embarrassed at what is in the movie that they hope their kids don't know. God's word has a message on every level for you. No matter how deeply you read it, you will never grasp it all. You'll spend a lifetime looking into the mystery of its beauty. Can I drop one last sode on you? I've been preaching for one hour and 31 minutes. Will you give me five more? Who will give me five more? Who? Five, ten, five. Okay, we're good for a little while. Leviticus 25, 9 through 12 says, Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the tenth day and the seventh month. We're, I don't have time to tie it into Revelation, but we have a certain number trumpet again. Consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all of its inhabitants. Hey, did you hear prophecies in other tongues, interpretations from Justin Treister, a further explanation from me? You know, we didn't coordinate any of that. And it was about a year of Jubilee. It was about freedom. Do you know what numerical value noon has? You guessed it. It's 50. When Hebrews write their letters, each letter, much like Roman numerals, represents a number. Noon is the number 50. Something about this kind of leader, the one that starts humble and then is raised up in strength and produces life. Something about that brings liberation to the world. Do you know what happens at Jubilee? Every slave goes free. Do you know what happens at Jubilee? Every inheritance, every inheritance is restored to its rightful owner. God reorders the creation to look exactly like Eden, which, by the way, is what the reordering of your relationship with your wife as you enter into the holy places together is supposed to do. It's like multiplying the garden of God. You should read Song of Songs and see exactly what that means. When the man leads in a godly, orderly fashion, when the female responds in a godly, ordered fashion, when children are born and raised in a godly, ordered fashion, the cosmos, the ordered creation that Adonai so loves, is being returned to freedom in Eden-like state. Somebody say glory to God. Love is an action that results... From the choice to value the blood covenant so much that you sacrifice for it continually because that's what God does. That is where all of this starts in order. How many of you would like to get your lives in order? Because this is where it starts. Get your home in order. This is where it starts. Get your relationships in order. This is where it starts. Do you need to make a different choice today? Have you been choosing Poorly. Have you been choosing to punish your spouse? 
Have you been choosing to obey God's word when it's convenient? Use it like a sword when it's not convenient? How many of you have homes that feel and look like Eden? Does your relationship with your spouse reflect the blood covenant and godly order today? Are your children being raised in God's order? You know, to say you love your child too much to discipline them is not love at all. It's actually hatred. It's disorder. You can spend this afternoon in delight, in right order with God and man. Or you can spend an eternity in spite and resentment, never having experienced the freedom of God. That's a choice. It's a choice that we're going to leave with you now because God gives you that choice. At every baseball game, you see the same scripture. For God so loved the world, the ordered creation, that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever would believe in him, we have reduced that to believe on Jesus and go to heaven. What a tragedy. If you really believe on Jesus, you will match his sacrifice with your own and heaven will come to earth starting in your life, moving to your wife's life, being spread out to your whole family and your household will be an agency, a little embassy for the kingdom of God on earth, spreading it everywhere. Is that what you want? Because you have a choice before you. Let's stand to our feet. We've covered some heavy subjects. I've lobbed some bombs at you. I've turned over enough stones in the church that just last service I was told what a cult we are. That always encourages me. Some of you feel disconnected from the pastors. Some of you feel disconnected from each other. Some are offended. You're sure somehow or another... That we have a problem. I want to suggest to you to choose to acknowledge that your problem is between you and God. And as you get your problem right with God, he will help you get the problem right with everyone else. It all starts with you. It starts with transformation in your life. And when you are transformed, you know what will happen? Your actions will be loving towards all who are around you. And they will want to reciprocate. Stop waiting for someone else to go first. Be courageous enough to choose. To choose life now. It'll be an afternoon delight.